The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, hello. Is, uh, I'm not sure. Is this on? Good. It's, you can't always tell from up here. <laughs> so, um, this evening I have a, a little ex- experiment going for me. <laughs> uh, and I want to talk about something, uh, an aspect of Buddhism that we don't talk about very often. So when we talk about uh, training in Buddhism, we, there are three trainings. One is in ethics, one is in meditation, and um, one is in wisdom. So wisdom is what we'd all like to have, of course, and we start with meditation, and then we say, this is insight meditation, so lead me to the insights. Thank you. And the question is, how do we get to insight from meditation? And what does that have to do with the third training, which is the ethical part of life? So I want to kind of talk about that this evening. And um, so so, uh, the ethics part is is called sila. The the Pali word is sila. And it's sometimes translated as morality. But I, I prefer ethics because it seems to have a little less loading on it, you know, Morality kind of implies all the things you should and should not be doing. And I really don't want to talk about what we should and should not be doing because I think that really misses the whole point. So, uh, so I don't want to talk about that. Uh, the second one is samadhi, meditation. And that we're kind of familiar with. We all come in here and we sit. And we have, there are lots of goals for meditation. One of them is to become calm and peaceful and that very often happens. Not always. <laughs> Not always. But there are two aspects. Mindfulness is one of them, and concentration is the other. And they kind of go together. You know, that this is what we do when we sit down. We sort of focus on something and we become mindful. And then there is wisdom, which is tied up with views. So... When we talk about Buddhism, we say that the the primary teaching is the Four Noble Truths. The presence of suffering, the cause of suffering, the possibility to end suffering, and the path to the end of suffering, which is called the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path is actually divided into these three areas. Sila, you have, so the the ethics part, you have uh, right speech, uh, uh, right action, right livelihood. For meditation, you have mindfulness and concentration. For wisdom, you have right view, right intention, right effort. So those are the, the eight pieces of the eightfold, of eightfold Path fall into those three categories. So it's not really foreign, but we don't talk about the ethics part very often. And maybe one of the reasons is that a a lot of the way that we come to practice in the West has to do with that meditation aspect. That's what we're comfortable with. That's what we're here for. I don't need to hear all the things about what I should or should not be doing in my life. 
But what it turns out is that all of these aspects are not actually separate from one another. They are so interrelated that you actually can't leave them apart. You can start there. You can try that. But they're, they're, they come up for you anyway. When, when we're sitting and we're being mindful, all of the other things are there. So you know, for the sake of, of clarity and talking about them, we divide them into these, these eight segments. But really, you can't have concentration if you don't have effort. Right? You can't have ethics if you don't have intention. You really can't have much mindfulness if you don't have concentration. Now, all of it kind of comes together. Effort is part of concentration. Mindfulness is inherent in all of it. So insight comes from this interconnection of these aspects. We, we sit and we try to establish mindfulness in our meditation. And that mindfulness allows us to watch what's happening with our mind. What does our mind like to do? What are the habits that our mind has? And it's in that place of discovery, that place of discovery about what's going on, that insight has an opportunity to arise. Now, I could just tell you, here are the things that you're going to find. You're going to find that everything changes. You're going to find that... I I could give you a long list of things, but the real value arises out of what you notice about your mind. What you notice as you sit and meditate. That experience of discovery is what leads to your experience and, and your understanding of that experience. So all of the ideas I have about your experience are just my ideas and they probably don't have much to do with your experience. So I encourage you to keep in mind that what's important is what you yourself discover. That's one of the real beauties of Buddhism, actually. It's the thing I like the best. It's that I don't have to believe anything, that I can discover it on my own. I feel really comfortable with that. Now, so I may have started on the path of Buddhism with certain ideas about what I wanted out of it. And I can tell you that it has all changed for me. And very little of that change has been deliberate. That is, I didn't say, I'm going to become this, and I'm going to do that. I may have said those things, but that's not what happened. (laughs) What happened arose out of the practice, and it all was a surprise. All a surprise. So... What I want to talk about specifically tonight, it's very rare that I get to speak two weeks in a row, so I, I get that opportunity. I'm going to be here again next week. So, um, so I have a couple of things I want to say that are linked to one another. And tonight, what I want to talk about is wanting and not wanting. Wanting and not wanting. Lies and view. Now, don't get this confused with right speech. This isn't about right speech. Okay? When we talk about the Four Noble Truths, we say that suffering is caused by, by craving or wanting. And what I'd like to talk about is what, is what is the nature of wanting? 
You know, you, you can talk about what I want. There's an object of what I want. But mostly what we want is for things to be different. Things to be different. And as humans, we're sort of, that's sort of built in. We always want things to be different. We wouldn't get up in the morning if we didn't want things to be different. We'd just stay in bed. But there's something that moves us. Okay, so, so we always, always, we very often want things to be different. Okay? So I want to talk about what's the nature of wanting. And the second thing is, do I need to satisfy the wanting? Do I need to satisfy the wanting? Is the wanting okay, given the fact that we're all very wanting people? Is it okay? So when we talk about the end of suffering and getting rid of craving, let's be a little more subtle about what we mean about that. So those are the things that we're going to talk about. So in wanting, there's a kind of leaning forward. Wanting, there's always, there's something that's, that's out there. There's a feeling in my body when I want something of, of leaning into the moment or leaning, you know, there's, it's out there, it's out there. Even if it's inside me where I want something, it's still there's this sense of leaning into it. So maybe uh, it's a kind of dissatisfaction that moves forward. You know, maybe I want food or maybe I want uh, a friend or maybe I want to just be somewhere else or maybe I want sunshine I live where it's very often foggy so it's a common thing for me to want is sunshine sometimes it's very subtle and sometimes it's quite gross Okay, so I'm hungry, I want something now I want to eat at other times I'm actually aware of wanting that feeling that Something isn't quite right, and I don't even know what it is I want. But I have this feeling there's a kind of hollowness and uh, an itching, and it's, ah, 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 you know, that just, it's not quite right. That, that's a, an important part of, um, of what we call it. There's, there's kind of a hollow feeling, you know, that the wanting, you just, ah. for a long time I associated wanting with curling my tongue. And so when my tongue would curl, I'd say, ah, I'm in the midst of wanting. Pay attention to this. It's just, you know, a quirk of mine, something I noticed. And then sometime later, like years later, I discovered that that curling of the tongue actually wasn't about wanting. It was about trying to figure out how to get what I wanted, which is quite different. It's really different. So the association was correct, but what was actually going on for me was very different. And that, that I found really interesting because how you approach each of those things, my tongue is curling, I'm into wanting. I've already passed wanting, I'm into figuring out how I get it. <laughs> so then I had to pay attention to something that happened even sooner than that if I really wanted to just be in touch with wanting. So that was kind of interesting. So I, I want to, um, now I want, I'm going to take this into the realm of lying. And the reason I'm going there has to do with something I've been trying to work out in my life. Okay, I, have, I, um, 
I discovered that in a number of social situations that I've had in my life, lying has been quite common. It's actually quite accepted. You know, not the deliberate, that shirt is white kind of lie. A little more subtle than that. Sometimes it's as blatant as that, and sometimes it's much more subtle. But basically, the whole idea of clean and absolute honesty doesn't make it. Not there. So I've been thinking a lot about this. So what I want to talk to you about is a particular sutta. And this is a sutta about uh, the Buddha talking to his son, Rahula. So uh, it's well known that the Buddha left his family and went off and, and uh, became enlightened, but it's not so well appreciated that when his son got to be a certain age, like, I don't know, eight, nine years old, the Buddha became responsible for taking care of him. And so there are a number of suttas where he instructs his son, and one of them is actually on the subject of lying. So in this, in this uh, sutta, he tells a story about the royal tusker elephant. And the elephant is a a battle, a warrior for the king. And the elephant gets in there and he swings his legs and he uses his feet and he uses his ears and he's, he's in there fighting for everything, but he doesn't use his trunk. His trunk he holds back and he keeps safe. The trunk, you know, this is over here. So he didn't give his all. He was, a good, he was a good warrior for the king, but he didn't give his all. But then one day, he got into it, and he said, this is it, I'm going in, the whole thing. And he used his trunk. And the Buddha said about him, there was nothing that he would not do. Nothing. And so then, the conclusion, he says, the elephant has given up his life. Now there is nothing this royal tusker elephant would not do. So too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train thus. I will not utter a falsehood even as a joke. Therefore, Rahula, When one who is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, for one who is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Now, I read that and I said, that's really harsh. Telling a deliberate lie, there is no evil that that one would not do. That says that the Buddha believed that someone who would deliberately lie could do anything. Wow. Lying is something that's actually pretty prevalent in our society, in little ways and big ways. So I ran across uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times a few days ago written by a guy named Brian Morton, who is um, director of the graduate program in, in fiction at Sarah Lawrence College. And 
Dr. Horton, Morton talked about, it, the title of it was Falser Words Were Never Spoken. And he complained about the fact that people take quotes of people and, and sort of spruce them up a little bit. So he went into a coffee shop and there was a cup that said, uh, had an inscription from uh, Henry David Thoreau saying, go confidently in the direction of your dreams, live the life you've imagined. Now, you've probably seen that quote. It's actually pretty common, but it isn't a quote. So the closest he could find is out of Walden, which Thoreau wrote, I learned this at least by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with the success unexpected in common hours. So what's the difference between those two? They're close. They're close. Go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Live the life you've imagined. The other one says, I learned this, that if one advances confidently in the direction of your dreams and endeavors to live, live the life he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. The difference is, in the first case, it implies that you should go full bore after your dreams and live them, and everything will be great. And the second one says, you know, if you go that direction, you have a better chance of things working out in the end. The degree of difference between them has everything to do with the quality of mind. It has everything to do with whether you, you assume that success lies in whatever you decide it lies in, which is a form of lying. All I have to do is this, and everything's going to be great. I just follow my dreams. What if your dreams are really cockeyed? <laughs> you know, I've had some pretty strange dreams. What if my dream is to go around the world, and I take off, and I don't have any money, I don't have, I've been planned for it, I have nothing... You know, it's possible to do this, but I'm older now. It's harder. <laughs> you know? There was another quote uh, that is attributed to Gandhi, which is, be the change you wish to see in the world. That's, a, that's one we see a lot. Gandhi never said that. Gandhi said the closest he could find was, if we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change toward him. We need not wait to see what others do. Now, if you go by the first one, which is be the change you wish to see in the world, it implies that change occurs totally just because you change your behavior. Now, change occurs all the time but you don't have that much influence on what happens in the rest of the world. And in fact, Gandhi was really clear about that. He knew it, take, it took millions of people to do something in concert to make change. That's what he had to do in India. So this is kind of a, a trivial example, but it's, it's, like, it's, it's creeping. It's creeping dishonesty. And it has everything to do with how we formulate our ideas about ourselves, about what's possible. And we create our world with those beliefs. 
and we set up a lot of suffering. So, um, so why does this matter? These two little examples of quotes being misquoted, where we sort of recast these wise men in terms of our own desires. Lies, exaggerations, little embellishments of the truth. They're kind of ways that we create more drama, more stimulus. You know, we sort of, it's not quite good enough the way it is. I'm going to make it look just a little bit better. And we start making up things about ourselves that we then believe. And we have all these views about ourselves that are kind of tied to those beliefs. And they start out as little things, you know, little things. But it's not very far from a distance from creating a a favorable image of a company, for example. You know, you kind of put your best foot forward. And, well, let's delay shipments this quarter till next quarter because we've got enough sales this quarter, but next quarter our sales aren't going to be as good and it's not going to look like we're growing company anymore, and so we'll just wait. This happens. (laughs) This is how... And it it becomes very easy. It's actually quite dishonest. And we do this with ourselves, you know. I convince myself that here I am... um, I want to look good, right? So, uh, so I came prepared tonight. <laughs> now, I had other intentions for preparing for tonight, one of which what brings joy to my life is sharing the Dharma. This is, this is really good. I like this. But also, I don't want to come up here and start talking about something and then fumble over my tongue, and you know, maybe I'm not going to say anything that interests you, and... And I have this wanting that you're going to like what it is I have to say, that you're going to find it useful. And if that becomes overwhelming, then I'm going to start telling jokes and telling you things that are going to make you laugh and you know, try to find the most pithy thing I can say and maybe lose sight of the message, which is that you know sometimes I do fumble over my tongue and I say the wrong thing. And somebody, I was talking the other day, and somebody said, you know, what you just said was really interesting. Would you repeat that? Well, I couldn't remember what I said. (laughs) And I couldn't repeat it, and it wasn't something I had written down. So we were just lost. We had to just go on. (laughs) Because I couldn't remember what it was. And that was okay. It was okay. And getting used to that, it's okay part is essential in getting rid of craving for things to be different. It's an important part of it. So, so we lie to ourselves. We can pretend that things are different, or we can cultivate differences. There's a real difference there. <clears throat> 
So if we shore up our belief in something by a, a series of little fantasies, we start creating a very unreal world. And, and then we try to live in that unreal world. And sometimes that gets to be really difficult. On the way here tonight, I spoke with a woman who I had called because she had had a problem with her knee and I was checking on her with her knee. And she told me that, and she, see, she was obviously really sad about something. And so I probed and probed and probed. And so finally she told me that her son was in danger of going to jail because he had not been making child payments to an agency. And he had been making the payments to his ex-wife, but he was paying her directly instead of through the agency. And, and the judge said, but you're not paying through the agency. And the, the, the ex-wife said, he's never paid me. And so the judge said, I want that payment here tomorrow afternoon or you're going to jail. And this is somebody that you know, doesn't have a job and his house is being foreclosed and he's really stuck. And he's actually been paying. Now, I think he's in arrears, but you know, he'd been, he'd been paying what he could. But his wife, his ex-wife, wasn't actually lying in the sense that he hadn't been making the payments to the right place. But she was definitely lying that he'd never supported her or the kids. And you sort of sit there with that kind of muck. And what do you do with that? You know? And, and I, I was thinking, you know, I, I had this, oh, gee, how can I fix this move? Yeah, I'd like to fix this. But this is much bigger than anything I can fix. And uh, I thought about all the people in that chain. You know, the, 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 the man's mother who wanted to give him money, who's in debt because she's been giving him money. And the young man who can't get a job, who really loves his kids. And what, what kind of suffering is the, the woman, his ex-wife, experiencing that, she, that she's going to the judge? Well, she had, you know, he's, a, he's in arrears, no question. Maybe she's losing something, I don't know. But there's, there's too little of people being honest in that chain. You know, too little. There, there's too much pretending. There's too much pretending going on. And not enough cultivating, how are we all going to get out of this together? Now, what the Buddha also said after he made that statement about and a person is capable of anything, of any evil, if they tell a deliberate lie. He said, the important thing for you to do is to reflect. And you reflect before you make a move or say something. You reflect during that movement. And you reflect afterward. And what you reflect is on whether this action or this thing you're going to say is harmful, first of all, to you? Is it harmful to others? 
or both. So that's what you ask. Is this harmful for you? Is this harmful for others or both? And you do that before and during and after. Now, it's easier to reflect when you're sitting calmly in meditation. It's a lot more difficult to reflect when you're in the surge of the emotional moment. But you can still notice, wow, I am really angry. I can really feel this energy. Maybe I don't know whether it's good for me or or someone else, but usually I've gotten now so that when I'm experiencing anger, I'm pretty clear it's hurting me. So uh, a few weeks ago, I went to a party that my family threw for me, and uh, I got into an argument with my brother. And the irony was that I had deliberately intended to uh, improve my relationship with my brother. Well, that didn't happen. It actually ended up being far worse. And in the, in the process of having the argument with him, I realized I don't want to be arguing with you. And I left and went somewhere else. And then he followed me. And he brings up some more stuff. And I realized we weren't going to get past this. And that the only thing I could do to keep from calling him names and whatever else was on the tip of my tongue was to leave. So I left the party that was in my honor because I couldn't control myself with him. And rather than hurt myself and him, I left. Now, if I'd really been in control of myself, I would have been able, you know, as a good Buddhist, I should have been able to maintain my equanimity and not fight with him and resolve my issues with him. But I could see that wasn't going to happen. And that was okay. My desire to have it better wasn't going to be realized. And I could have stayed there and tried to convince him of my point of view or lied and just agreed with him. I could have done that. You know, there were lots of possibilities, but the energy of that moment did not allow that to happen. And the safest thing that I could do was leave. And I've reflected on it a lot since then. This talk is part of that reflection. (laughs) What happened? Why is it happening? Who was being harmed? In the noticing, in the noticing, we can look at the quality of mind that has arisen and decide something about that. It isn't about being a better person. What I endeavor to do is really to purify my mind, to be really clear be really clear about this is what I want how how much of what I think I want is actually true 
So in the fight with my brother, it's true, I wanted him to see my point of view. Actually, I wanted him just to see me. (laughs) But there was a whole lot of other stuff going on in that conversation that was years, many, many, many years old. I've known this man my entire life. We have a lot of history. And all of that was present in the room. And so what I really wanted was for all of that old stuff to be different. Fat chance of that. (laughs) Right? And I wanted this moment to be different, and I wanted the future to be different. There was a whole lot more happening than I want not to be fighting with my brother. And it's, it's important to be able to see that and not to lie to myself about that. And so in reflection afterward, I, I realized a lot of really painful things about my relationship with my brother. A lot of painful things. But I'm not suffering for having trying. I, I don't have the need to change them but it's really important that I see them because then I can hold them in a different way. When I'm not ignoring them, not suppressing them, not pushing them away, not pretending that they're different than they are, then I can meet them more realistically. And I'm not lying to myself about them. I hope, you know... (laughs) The subconscious is an odd thing. So there's the truth about the wanting. What is it that we really want? Very often I'll say to myself, well, I want ice cream. Ice cream's going to make me feel better. Ice cream is my thing. I like ice cream. But in truth, what I want is not to be bored or not to be sad or... You know, there are all these other possibilities that I can just hide by giving myself ice cream. I can pretend the ice cream is is the thing. And I'm rushing over to, to solve that wanting before I even bother to find out what it is. What is it? What is it that I truly want? And what I notice is that I have certain habits of mind so that when I want, ice cream almost always comes up. You know, that's not even true. Often it comes up. (laughs) I have a lot of trouble with exaggeration. But almost anything that I say about myself, I can tell you the opposite about myself also. And that's what I've realized, that very often a lot of the conclusions I come to are based on habit patterns in my mind. This is what I think about me. Oh, yeah, this is me doing this. But if I look carefully, oh, no, this is actually something different. But it's easy to take the shortcut, you know. It comes up, comes up, comes up. But it may not be the truth. Or it may be something right underneath that that is the truth. And so we have to ask the question, what else is here? What else is here? It turns out one of the most important wantings is that vague, amorphous one that you sometimes feel where you don't know what it is. That's a really important time. 
There's something to be learned there. There's something that your mind is looking at and wants to kind of shut down. You know, it wants to just go to the easy answer on that. But is it possible to notice the wanting and just say, oh, wanting, wanting. Oh, how interesting, I'm wanting again. And not, not go to what is it I want. It may not be important to know what it is you want. It may not be important. That's radical. It may be that that ability to just notice the wanting is enough. And you don't have to rush into fixing the wanting. You don't have to. It, it removes you from that place of craving, actually. If you allow yourself to be wanting. Oh, wanting. <laughs> wanting. Look at that. You know, it's like looking at the, the pain in your knee. You've all had the experience of sitting quietly and you feel a pain and you you go through that process of, am I going to move? Am I not going to move? How badly do I want this pain to go away? How important is it for this pain to go away? We can actually do that really early with the whole idea of wanting. There are, I found a sutta that talked about just one aspect of wanting, which is... uh, the verbalizations, craving verbalizations, it turns out there are 108 of them. <laughs> so there are 18, you know, the, the Buddhist lists go, go this way. There are 18 internal ones and 18 external ones. That's 36. And then there's, there's past, present, and future versions of them all. Okay, So, so there, there are things, I am, I am here, I'm good, I'm bad. I might be, I might be here, I might be there, I will be, I will be that, I will be there, I will be doing this. All of those things are internal verbalizations, most of which are in the world of fantasy. No, I'm not even sure about the things that I'm sure of, because things change all the time. So what am I willing to do to maintain the image of myself or the image that others have of me? What am I willing to do? Exaggerate, tell stories with a certain amount of embellishment. Or maybe I, uh, I associate myself with influential people. I tell stories about my good friend, this important person, and my good friend, that important person, and my good, right? You associate yourself so it sort of rubs off on you, makes you look a little better in the reflected glory. Or maybe I villainize my opponents. You know, I look better because that person looks so bad. Now, we're not doing any acting here, this is all mental. We haven't even got to the point where we're, we're into right action. It's all happening up here. It's not even happening in what I say to you. It's happening up here. The quality of what's going on in my mind is affecting my suffering. 
It's all right here. And it doesn't meet that criterion of not causing harm to me. It doesn't meet that. So, can I be okay with wanting and just say, all right, there it is, wanting, and I don't have to satisfy it. I don't have to fix it. Now, maybe I'll get to the point where I never, I don't want anymore. Maybe I will become an enlightened person and I will not be plagued by wanting, but I'm not counting on it. So, from my point of view, I want to stop suffering around my wanting. And one way to do that is to stop feeding my wanting. So when I get to the place where I say, okay, I want this to be different, and I start telling myself all the things that are wrong with this thing that I want to be different, or I start telling myself all the things that could be better about this thing that I want to have different, that's how I feed it. I keep the want very alive by either telling myself what's wrong with where I am or telling myself how much better it would be or telling myself, oh, this is just a little thing. You know, I'll just have a little ice cream. Just a little ice cream, it won't matter. Or, or even, I'm, I'm good at this too. I'm so proud of myself, I notice this is just wanting. I celebrate by having ice cream. It's very interesting how tied up we get with something as simple as what's going on in our heads. And the important thing that we need to do is just be able to look at it, just to see it. I think that's really huge, just to be able to see it. Oh, there it is, that wanting. Maybe sometimes I'll try to fix that wanting. Maybe sometimes I'll just bring my hands over it. But the first step is to see it. The first step is to notice it. So, since this is all a little glum, I'm going to, I'm going to close with something that's a little better. <laughs> so this is a poem by Holly Hughes. And the name of the poem is Mind Wanting War. More, more. Okay. Only a beige slat of sun above the horizon, like a shade pulled, not quite down. Otherwise, clouds. Sea rippled here and there, birds reluctant to fly. The mind wants a shaft of sun to stir the gray porridge of the clouds, an osprey to stitch the sea to sky with its barred wings, some dramatic music, a symphony perhaps, a Chinese gong. But the mind always wants more than it has. One more bright day of sun, one more clear night in bed with the moon, one more hour to get the words right, one more chance for the heart in hiding to emerge from its thicket in dried grasses, as if this quiet day with its tentative light weren't enough. <laughs>
as if joy weren't strewn all around. May you discover that enough already is here. Thank you. So those are my thoughts. Do you have any comments, thoughts, objections? Would do you want something? <laughs> it's too late to want something different for the talk. When you were talking about quotes, um, one of my least favorite quotes um, that is pervasive uh, is Nike's motto, which is just, just do, do it. it hate that. <laughs> um, and also, I have a, a favorite quote, which I believe is Eisenhower, um, which is, things are more like they are now than they ever were, which I uh, am quite fond of. Um, and thank you for sharing about your brother, because I recently had something happen with my brother as well, so I appreciated hearing that. Um, my daughter got married, and my brother decided to have elective surgery, deluding himself four days before the wedding that he would be fine by the wedding, which he was not. So he missed his only niece's wedding. And I so wanted it to be otherwise. <laughs> and it was um, part of the meditation tonight was, you know, coming to grips with that. Um, and I really appreciated your talk because it helped kind of hone things in for me. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, you know, it's humbling for me to uh, realize that I can't live up to my own ideals. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that I don't keep trying. And the, the quality of mind that allows me to have both possibilities there, that I actually want to love my brother. And I don't. <laughs> At some level, I do. I mean, truly, I do. But the differences between us right now are, are very large, and that's painful. But I don't need to feed it, you know, by trying to make me more right and him more wrong. Mm -hmm. It just is. Yeah, I had a good interaction. I phoned my brother today because I realized hmm, I haven't heard very much from him. And I could have gone to, what's he thinking? He should be finding out more about the wedding. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, he must not be feeling well still. And so, indeed, I phoned him, and he still is not recovered. So I was glad that I took the higher ground. <laughs> so. I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this, but... I'll start with, if you have ice cream at home in your freezer, <laughs> how do you let yourself have it now that you've talked about having to be aware of wanting it? Well, I realize that ice cream doesn't have that much to do with what I want. It's a substitute for all the things I want. So... You know, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. But if I'm addicted to ice cream, if I can't not have the ice cream, if I'm not aware 
when I'm substituting the ice cream. These are all bad things. Now, I could make it easier on myself by not having ice cream in the house. But then what am I proving? Do I have to prove something? You know, I could also say that my chances for enlightenment would be enhanced by going off to a monastery, but I'm not going to do that. So somehow I have to live in this world that I'm in and, and, and watch what my mind is doing around all of these things and watch what happens when I succumb to a temptation. And then maybe I can become increasingly skillful about it. I actually go weeks without eating that ice cream. <laughs> You know, I remembered uh, uh, when I first started meditating and I discovered the whole thing about wanting and I talked to Gil about it and said, you know, I the most dis wonderful thing I discovered that I was just wanting and that I was just substituting ice cream. And he said, great. He said, did you have the ice cream? I said, yes. And he said, tell me when you don't have the ice cream. <laughs> because there is a quality that is important which is not satisfying that want. Because every time you satisfy that want, you just kind of reinforce it. So, um, so for me, it's a, it's a metaphor for how I live my life, that ice cream. Now, and someday I'll stop talking about it in talks, but, you know, it's, it's very real for me. I, it's, you know, if I didn't have the ice cream in the freezer, I might not notice when I'm substituting a want I might not be able to notice there's something else happening. By making it too easy, I might be substituting something else I'm not as aware of. So there's, you know, there's also that. So the ice cream in your freezer is an opportunity for you to practice yes, it mindfulness. Is. Yes, it is. How yes. am I thinking about thinking? And I love ice cream. <laughs> and my husband loves ice cream, to be fair. <laughs> May you all find your ice cream. Good night. Thank you. <laughs>